Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenneth Holmes. Oh, that's so nice. My name is Robert Kraft. This is Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're also joined by composer Carol, as we are every week. Hi, Carol. Hello. Oh, that's a very nice hello. That's very nice. You didn't do your, your signature line. What, what is it? Hello, hello? Hey, guys. Oh, hey, guys. Oh, hey, that's guys. nice. Hey, guys. <laughs> a big guest today. Very excited for Theodore Shapiro, or Teddy, mm-hmm. as he goes by. Yep. Uh, he's, would you call him the king of comedy of the last 20 years? I would films? say he's right up there in the throne room somewhere. Yep. Uh, let me list off some of these films he's done. Dodgeball, The Devil Wears Prada, Bombshell, Trolls World Tour, which is uh, the new one that just came out this year. Uh, Tropic Thunder, Spies in Disguise, Old School, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, The Intern, Last Christmas, Marley and Me, Central Intelligence. He worked on a couple of those with uh, Ludwig Göransson as well, which um, we learned recently that uh, Ludwig was his assistant. Mm. Isn't that uh, amazing? In the, early, in the early days, which is really cool. So, um and Robert, you worked with Teddy on a couple of movies. Oh, listen, we had so much fun. First of all, Devil Wears Prada, one of my favorite scores, wow, and yeah. he just crushed it. But also, I'd like to suggest to our listeners the very profound piece of advice. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. And <laughs> that is uh, right. That was a really remarkable movie on every level. And Teddy crushed it, but also just so much fun to work on that one. Really love Dodge. So, yeah, well, we're excited to talk with Teddy about uh, all of his great works. Uh, before we get to our interview with Teddy, though, we want to take a moment, as always, to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers used by many of the guests right here on the show. I'm actually excited because I have now received, just received, I haven't downloaded it, and installed it, so I have that to look forward to, but a new edition of their best-selling BBC Symphony Orchestra. Uh, it's the Discover Edition. It's a whole symphony orchestra at your fingertips for just 49 bucks. Do you know that I got it because I completed a form on the Spitfire website, and it came in two weeks for free, so I heartily recommend doing that. So what film are you scoring? I'm going to score the Robert Kraft story starring Carol and Kenny as the villains. And <laughs> nice. I have to I have to save the day by writing a piece of music that when they hear it, they faint. All right. So here's the deal. The movie comes out in 48 hours. Get ready. We need to we need the score now, though. Do you see? I'm trying to make this. I'm trying to give you some pressure here. To, well, I better start. To I better start downloading. Here's the hard part about my downloading it: is I need one of the villains to kind of advise me. Carol is a good <laughs> advisor for downloading software and best ways to do stuff. So that's classic to, narrative. Yeah, she, I have to be really nice to you. the villain. Yeah. I have to say, Carol, hi. Listen, um, before I. Write a piece of music that's going to make you faint. I'm going to need your help. <laughs> We're off the rails here. Uh, we also okay. want to mention Spitfire's new Composer magazine. You can see inside John Pisano's studio with a tour alongside Christian Henson. Christian, by the way, some really cool YouTube videos. Check those the out best. as well. 
And most importantly to our listeners, we have a deal for you. 20% off your first purchase of Spitfire products. It's good on well over 50 different Spitfire libraries. Just use the promo code SCORE2020 on their website in the checkout. And it's a limited time offer, so be sure to use the promo code so they know we sent you and so you can save and uh, elevate your music. Stick around after today's show. We're going to play a cue created using the London Contemporary Orchestra Textures package. So they have so many different libraries. Um, be sure to use that promo code if uh, you haven't gone over there and checked out some of what they offer. There's a, a million different libraries over there, and uh, you can elevate your music. Yeah. Check it out. Right. Um, Robert, happy Father's Day. I appreciate it, and uh, I had a very wonderful Father's Day this past Sunday. The Craft Children gave me a beautiful gift, a donation to a favorite charity, which I really appreciate. Those are my favorite nice. kinds of presents. I, I have enough slippers um, and bathrobes, <laughs> so I like that. And uh, Kenny, you were telling me just before we rolled today that there have been some date changes for the big film award shows. Are those? Yeah. Let me. What's happening with all that? And how how do they even well, know what to there do? There was a switcheroo. So last week, before our right before our Daniel Pemberton episode came out, the Oscars announced they're moving the date back two months. Um, of course, due to the pandemic stuff and the uncertainty of audiences and and what what is to come with that. So the Oscars moved to April twenty fifth, and then the Golden Globes took the Oscars date of February 28th. So I don't know why, if the Oscars move back two months, what makes the Globes thinks that's a good place to be. I'm not really sure what is going on with anything. And can I tell you something? They're not really sure either, but it just sounded like a good thing to do. I, the hardest further back this, than January. That's all yeah. they really know at this point. The hard part will be what dates are now the window. If you follow me, it's yeah. used to be very, very clear that if your film had not been in a theater by December 31st of that calendar year, you weren't eligible. But now, of course, with all the films moving, and I don't know how they'll do it. Also, you know, there's certain films that have come out only on Netflix, but they are true Hollywood movies. So, uh, yeah, well, they extended the eligibility through February for the Oscars. Yeah. So it's not December 31st anymore. So there's an extra two months in there um, for this onslaught of theatrical releases that we're expecting. We'll see if they happen. Um, but a lot of that is uh, uncertain, as we all know. So it'll be interesting. We'll keep an eye on those dates. And it's kind of frustrating that things have to have dates because we expect a lot of stuff to move around. But like as a as a movie coming out in the theaters, you can't just say, yeah, it'll be out in the fall sometime. You have to put something on the calendar, but it's going to be interesting to see how much of these dates actually stay where they are. So I spent the weekend watching a couple things. Uh, HBO Max has all the Batman movies, so I jumped into Batman Returns. Hadn't watched nice. it in a long time. The music nice. is so great. It's it's not the greatest Batman movie of all of them, but it, it was fun to go back and watch. And it's funny, I forgot that that movie came out in like the early 90s, so... Some of Batman's technology is really corny, um, but yeah. it's it's worth it's worth watching. It was it was a fun little trip into into back into time there. And then I also checked out the new Perry Mason show on HBO. Did you check it out, Robert? I did. 
And um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. I think there are eight episodes, and the first one was Sunday. So yeah. I saw it, and uh, one of my favorite actors playing Perry Mason, I love that guy, Matthew Reese. He was in The I, Americans. He was, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, so. it's so far so good. I'm excited to see where it goes. And a great score so far by Terrence Blanchard, who yep. also has uh, The Five Bloods out on Netflix, uh, the latest Spike Lee joint. So he's keeping busy through all this stuff. Um, so keep an eye on that one. Check it out. Uh, it has a kind of a cool classic detective investigator score, a lot of solo trumpet. And, Noir. Yeah, I love it. I love that stuff. Um, Robert, when I was thumbing through what to watch this weekend, I saw a picture of Bruce Willis and it made me think of you cause you're buds with him and that you guys did Hudson Hawk. And I started thinking about that. I've never asked you about how that came about. So I think now's an appropriate time for a little score story. Gather round everybody. It's time for another score story. First off, for people who don't know what Hudson Hawk is, can you explain what this project was and you scored it? I co-scored Hudson Hawk. And for those of you that don't know what Hudson Hawk is, your your life is currently pleasant and safe. Um, <laughs> because once you know, things change. But um, Hudson Hawk was a song that I'd written. It's actually a funny story of how... Uh, I was living in New York City, and I'd written a song. I'd actually kind of written a bass line for a song that made me think, oh, man, this is like one of those cool kind of James Bond, Peter Gunn, spy, uh, criminal movie themes. It just I was writing it walking on a New York street, and I started to... I had this idea that the wind that was blowing towards me very powerfully in, in Chicago, the wind is called the Hawk. And mm. here I am walking in New York city and the wind's blowing from the West side into the Hudson river, the Hudson river. And I thought, Oh man, that my first thought was that must be called the Hudson Hawk. I kind of made that up. And I thought that's a great name for a character. So I literally wrote a song called Hudson Hawk. That's almost where it ends and could end. You know, I wrote this kind of funny story song about a crook named the Hudson Hawk. But as fate would have it, my bartender and very close friend was a few blocks away, and I walked into the Cafe Central on 75th in Amsterdam and sat at the end of the bar as I did most afternoons, and I told my pal... The story of Hudson Hawk, and we kind of BS'd about it a little bit, and he said the memorable words, someday I'm going to make this into a movie, to which I said, you're a bartender, let's try and stay in reality, and I was a songwriter. Cut to 10 years later. Wait, you're burying the lead here. Your bartender is Bruce Willis. Ah, oh, that. Yeah, the bartender is Bruce Willis, who was Forgot a Forgot to mention that. He was a bartender, and I was a songwriter. Um... And it's as ridiculous as it sounds. I was hoping to get famous as a rock and roll star. He desperately wanted to be anything, a TV star, in some commercials, whatever he could get as an actor. Um, and then things happened. A little thing called moonlighting. And uh, I, my producing and writing, and I'm scoring movies, and... Um, 
Bruce then gets offered, among other things, a movie deal. As his star starts to climb with Die Hard and all that, and he, when he's offered a movie deal, he says, I know the movie I want to make. I'd like you to call my friend Robert Kraft. He has an idea for a movie called Hudson Hawk. So if you look on the Hudson Hawk credits, which means you need to take several hours out of your life to watch the credits because I think I have credits as story by, song by, uh, maybe it's, I'm co-composer with the great legendary Michael Kamen, um, who had scored Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and was a real film composer, which I was not. That must have been really exciting, though, for you to just, like, have this little tiny idea that Bruce never forgot about, and then he pitched it. That's crazy. It was crazy. Everything about it was crazy. The movie was crazy. And years later, because it came out maybe 92 or so, People still come up to me and say, first of all, this if you say this sentence, you are clearly in need of some help. If you say, Hudson Hawk's my favorite movie, man, <laughs> I think, wow. Um, People are saying ter- Yeah, I say, are you, are you getting the proper medication? It's beyond silly. It's, it's kind of a cool spy story. Crook gets into the Vatican to steal something, and... The crook's pal, Danny Aiello, and he time their robberies with songs. Would you like to swing on a star? And so they're singing that song as they're stealing shit because they know the song is two minutes and 47 seconds long. So it didn't work. It did not work, but... How'd it do in the theater? Terrible. Huge flop, but a cult favorite now. Don't you love that? A lot of people love it. I'll tell you one other silly thing to let you know how how amazing it is you asked me this today. Yesterday. We're talking yesterday. We're talking 24 hours ago. Mr. Willis asked me if I could send him a recording that I he knows I have of one little piece from Hudson Hawk that he loves that he couldn't find called Hawk Swing. And I said, hold, please. And I dug through my iTunes and I found the cue called Hawk Swing, which is in the movie. And I sent it to Bruce Willis. That's how recent Hudson Hawk has been a part of my life. How about that edition of Score Stories? Give it up for Robert Kraft, everybody. There you go. Um, We have a lot more stories to come because we have a composer guest to uh, badger with our questions. Um, We're going to take a break. Coming up after the break, we have Teddy Shapiro joining the show. Stick around. We'll be right back. James Cameron, you have been targeted for termination. What? What? Me? No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? That was a dream. Oh, that was a dream. The winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year returns. I'm just saying, Jim, why don't you go back to college? Get your degree. I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. This just isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? 
You are fired, Jim. I'm, I'm fired? It's time to look for another career. And the pressure to prove himself. Arnold. This line. Huh? It's feminine when I say that I'll be back. Leveraging everything. Why would you do this? This is my profession. It's my movie. Jim. Hey, Derek, you stay out of this. To achieve something titanic. It has to be perfect. Leo, just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? A new 10-part original series. Whoa, whoa, we're still dropping. Ah, damn it. I go to gym. Holy, talk to me. I got it, Jim. You don't got it. I got it. I got it. What do we do? Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Binge season one of Blockbuster now, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Dave Porter, and you are listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. Super excited about our guest today. He has scored some of my favorite movies just in life. I mean, I grew up watching so many of these great comedies uh, like Old School, Tropic Thunder. I mean, the list goes on and on. He also worked with Robert on Devil Wears Prada, which is uh, obviously a classic. Uh, we're joined by Teddy Shapiro. Shap- Actually, excuse me. It's Shapiro. Am I wrong? It is Shapiro. It is Shapiro. Teddy Shapiro joining the show. I got to ask you, that probably happens five times a day. Is that frustrating? Uh, Shapiro versus Shapiro? Yeah. I mean, I hardly recognize, you know, I don't even notice anymore. It's been happening my whole life. And, and, um, and Shapiro is an incorrect pronunciation as far as I'm aware. You know, I think that Shapiro is, is really the, the right way to say it. And Shapiro is some sort of Ellis Island deviation. And uh, that's, that's, that's my best information. So I I certainly don't take umbrage when anybody says Shapiro. Well, I think we've, I think actually we're done with our, our podcast. Thanks for coming on, Teddy. We really appreciate it. (laughs) Great. Okay, I've got some pronunciation. Teddy, I think that Devil Wears Prada was the first one. It was not. Oh, as I was about to say, that was a quiz question, and and I failed. Um, What did we work on first? The first thing we did together was dodgeball. Oh, you're so right. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Yeah. Um, One of my favorites, I mean, that is up there with, with... Citizen Kane and going with the wind for me. Dodgeball was just so extremely funny and great. I read it in a book. Um, I, I just really loved that. And I think that led me to believe 
if uh, somehow you would be able to tell us how exactly you got the gig, did it come through Fox Music or through the director? But I remember thinking at that point that you were the master of kind of funky, small band scores, not aware probably until later in our work life together that you had a complete classical education. How did it evolve that with your incredible education, you started to do so much work as a funk meister? <laughs> you know, I, I'd always been straddling a lot of musical worlds as a, as a musician. I played in bands growing up. Um, you know, I played in the jazz band when I was in high school. And then when I was in college, I, I had, um, a bunch of bands and notably I was, I was in this band called God, which was a, um, <laughs> like a funk soul disco band. Um, and, uh, so, you know, my, my ear was always kind of attuned to, to that stuff. And, um, and, you know, and, and while I was at Juilliard, um, you know, for our masters, um, in the early nineties, you know, I was also starting to write for, uh, you know, for a TV show on MTV and, and just kind of getting my feet wet in production of different kinds. So, so I, I just sort of developed a sense of, of writing in different genres and, and, and I was listening to everything too. So was that something you were looking for though or did did somebody come up to you and say hey you're a musician we're doing a show we need some help i went to college with a, a guy named uh michael showalter who um at the time was in this this sketch comedy show called the state um and they had a show on they they, they started out as students at nyu they got a show at at uh, mtv hmm. and um they had a musician that they worked with uh, a guy named Craig Wedron, who was in a band oh. called Shudder to Think, and um, and 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 Shudder to Think went on tour, and so they needed somebody to write music for the show, and and I was there. Now, like at the time, uh, not that I advertised this, but I was so green, I was so technically unprepared to do the job. Um, like I had a little Proteus. Proteus module, like, and, and a piano and a digital piano of some kind. And that was it. No effects. No, like, it was just like, so stupidly bare bones. <laughs> but I presented myself as somebody who was definitely qualified to do this job. That's actually a critical element of being a composer is presenting yourself as somebody who can definitely do the job. For sure. I mean, well, a critical element of every job is, yes, you know, faking until you make it. Right. Yep. And um, and so, yeah, so so I got the job. And then, you know, the postludes to that story is Craig, who, you know, who was in Shutter to Think has since become one of my closest friends <laughs> and uh, and is still a very, very busy film composer and, and, and television composer in his own right. And Michael Showalter um, has you know, become a really fine director. He, he made the big sick. I'm actually working with him right now on a movie called the eyes of Tammy Faye about Jim hmm. and Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, so, uh, so all of those relationships have, have flourished. When you're getting this, you know, this opportunity to score the state, 
are you studying comedic films or shows to figure out how to score comedy? Because you're a musician, but scoring comedy is, is really challenging. For sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I never really have felt like I've been able to, the answer is no, I didn't study anything. I just did it and I made mistakes and I figured it out as I went along. Um, which is probably the best way to learn how to do anything. Um, and I was just lucky to have a platform, you know, in, in which I could make mistakes and, and figure things out. Um, it's funny, like at the time, I remember if I did watch something to try to figure out what film composers were doing, I would find myself watching a movie and I'd realize like, oh my God, the cues started. I had, had no idea that, that it entered. And now like flash forward to now where any movie I watch, like the second music starts, I'm like, 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 (laughs) like I forget the story. Like I'm not, I'm not listening to the dialogue. Like it's the only thing I can listen to. And so I, I, I would very much like to go back to those innocent days where I could just watch a movie without thinking about the music. Was there a minute where during the state or whatever the next gig was, which I'd like to find out where you realized that your initial setup with the Proteus and the keyboard, whatever it was needed to absolutely exponentially increase. And you needed to start sussing out things like syncing to picture. When, when did that evolution take place? I feel like that evolution took place a couple years later. I was starting to meet other composers in New York and going to their setup and like seeing how actual professionals were doing their jobs. Um, and, you know, so I could see and, and, and getting tips, you know, like what should I add to my rig um, and, and, and just figuring out like what was needed and, and, so it, it wasn't like all at once I mm-hmm. bought a bunch of gear, um, but just over time upgraded my samplers and and started getting it a little bit more pro. But was it clear, for example, at Juilliard that this was the destination scoring film and TV? Or did you have another career in mind that this suddenly became, hey, wait a minute, I'm getting paid to write music? This was what I wanted to do. It, it's funny. It's like, I feel like the, um, in my mind, like the standard progression is guy goes to Juilliard and has aspirations to be a concert composer and then gets lured by the dark side of, of, uh, of film and television scoring. In this case, like I actually went, I entered Juilliard wanting to be a film composer hmm. and then got lured a little bit into, into concert composing. Like I, I just developed a little bit more of an interest and affinity for it while I was there. Uh, and when I got out of school, I spent a couple of years, you know, splitting my time between writing commissions and, and doing work in, in TV and film. Um, and, and, and really kind of was, was leading a double life for, for a number of years before I finally, you know, I came to a fork in the road eventually where I felt like I needed to make a choice and, and really devote myself to one or the other. And, um, and ended up turning down a significant commission. Um, Hmm. uh, yeah, an opera commission actually, uh, in order to, to pursue 
Who inspired the uh, the path to film scoring? Because you said you you knew what you wanted to do was was there a family member or were you just a fan no. of soundtracks and scores? You know, it when I was in undergrad, um, I think I, we have to give a shout out to your alma mater. You are Brown a Brun- University, a Brunonian, a Brunonian, yes, proudly. Um, and I, yeah. I, I had a, a, an amazing experience at Brown. So I'll tell I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story. This seems like you know a decent venue. Um, <laughs> That's what we so do. I, I I went to Brown thinking that music was going to be a hobby in my life. Like I I was always told that by my parents, and and I believed it. And and, and I was I was a sports kid as well as a as a musician. Not a great athlete, but but just I did it. It was a thing that I did. And when I was at orientation as a freshman, um, I was, you know, approached by the the rowing coach who are, you know, one of the rowing coaches who was on the lookout for people around my size to, 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 to try crew. So I went and I started, you know, practicing with the freshman rowing team. Uh, and I did that for a while. It was very difficult. And I started to feel eventually like, is this really what I'm going to spend my whole career at Brown doing, pursuing, you know, all of your spring breaks are spent rowing and all of, you know, it's a major, major commitment of time. So after a while I decided I wasn't going to do it and I quit and the coach did not seem that disappointed. And, um, (laughs) the boat started going in circles when you quit. (laughs) That's right. right. (laughs) Um, and that night, uh, my friend came by my room and he was like, I'm going to try out for this play. You should come. And so I went and, uh, and I got cast, you know, much, much to my surprise. And that got me really into the theater world at Brown, um, both as, uh, you know, as an actor and also as a composer as well. I was writing music for, for theater and um, I wrote a musical while I was there. But that became sort of my world and, and that's where my friends came from. And I think just kind of being in that, you know, in that world um, just made me feel like I wanted to give it a shot to pursue my ambitions. And, and what I want to do is write music for narrative. That's so lucky that you realized that so immediately. For sure. Yeah. I don't know. Why did I think that? I mean, I guess my, my friends and I were all really into movies. You know, we were all just super into film and, you know, I've just, I was just always drawn to that medium and it's, um, you know, it's reach. You know, I, I like the idea of writing for a medium that, that a lot of people were going to. It's a very big leap though. To kind of, as we know, and you know completely, having done it now, that moment of saying, I'm going to be a film composer, to actually the commitment and the time and the yeah. dang- danger that's involved in making that career choice. It's like saying, I'm going to go play for the NBA, I think. Right. That'll- and so yeah. there had to be some, you know, I think you probably took a very smart interim step, which is I'm going to go to Juilliard. Uh, but was there a moment where it was clear that Los Angeles would be a better venue? Cause you could have, there's a handful of composers, of course, who make a living in New York city right, uh, or stay on the East coast. But when did you come to LA? I came to LA in 
2000, the end of 2004. And so when I was first getting started, I mean, I was certainly cognizant of L.A., you know, of the, the pull of Los Angeles. But at that point, I felt like my friends are in New York. My, con- you know, my 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 contacts are in New York. And maybe it's better to, to sort of be in this smaller pond here. And, you know, I, I was looking at, you know, Carter Burwell was there and and. Uh, Howard Shore was on, you know, Tuxedo Park. Yeah. But then what happened was um, I, you know, I was starting to have success with, with independent, with independent films that were based in New York, but I couldn't get a job on a studio film because I'd never done a studio film. Mm -hmm. Perfect catch 22 logic. (laughs) Um, And at a certain point, my wife, who is, uh, she had just graduated from law school. Um, and she asked me, um, if it would be of interest to live in LA for a year. She applied for the job. She got a job. We, we moved out to LA for a year. Right before we moved out, we got married, like, you know, like the week before. And literally like we came to, to LA, we went on our honeymoon while I, while we were on our honeymoon, I got a call from my agent saying, like this other movie, which you did, which you couldn't get before the studio film because you weren't in Los Angeles. They just fired their composer. Like you want to do it. So, so, <laughs> so like immediately I was working on my first studio film, like when, when we landed in, in LA. Which was what? It was not another teen movie. Oh, yes. Starring a young Chris Evans. That was the height of the parody movies. Yes, exactly. And then while I would while we were in LA for that year, because it was a one year position, I got hired to do old school. And then we went back to New York. You, I have to let you know that you know I was sitting at Fox, and there was a buzz around you at that moment. Who knew that you were a that that was your second film, old school, and B, second studio you, film, second studio film, and B yeah. that you had gone back to New York. It was suddenly. Oh, this is a guy that you should think about for comedies. That was the thing for youthful, funky scores. Um, and to hear it now, how it was sort of falling into place on your side, but from where I sat, your name had suddenly surfaced as a contender. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just so funny how that works. So, 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 so here's what happened. We went back to New York. And then immediately I started doing, uh, I did Along Came Polly Hmm. um, with, and the director of that was a friend, a good friend of mine from Brown, who another piece of, uh, of my backstory was that he had gone to NYU film school. I'd started doing his short films and student films. And then that led to my first actual features, Hmm. Um, you know, an NYU student who, you know, who that chain of events led to did a feature that went to Sundance. And that was my first sort of actual, uh, that was my first narrative film feature. Nice. Um, so he did along came Polly, uh, Todd Phillips, who had done old school did Starsky and Hutch and Ben Stiller saw those two movies and said like, Oh, I like the music in that movie. And that is how I came to work on dodgeball. Dodgeball was looking for a composer and 
been, you know, called one night and was like, you want to do this? And, um, and, and that was, that was the, uh, that was the entrance. It's so interesting. So your, your, your connection with Ben Stiller then did, was his first directed film? Did he hire you as the composer? No. Um, well, first, his first film that he directed, as far as I know, is Reality Bites. The first big one, though, was Tropic Thunder. Am I wrong on that? You know what? He directed Zoolander as well. But Tropic Thunder was the first thing that that, that we worked on together. That was a risky, <laughs> for the time it, 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 it hit, but man, that would not play today. What was it like working on that film? I mean... It was it was a wild experience. Um, ben is is a really intense guy, and um, and I I love working with him. But when you're working with him, it's it's just full commitment and and you know and focus. And and so it, it was a very intense experience. Um, and, and at that point, you know, it, it, we had the we had the rapport of my having done a couple of films that he'd produced. Um, so there, there was some amount of trust there, but it was still a different thing with him as the director. Um, and so, you know, so there were some, um, you know, th- there were some playback sessions where I, you know, I just like felt pummeled afterwards. Um, but, but usually like, Usually I would feel like, oh my God, that went horribly. And then I'd look at the notes and think like, okay, it's actually not that bad. Like, you know, it's just, he was, he was just, I think, um, in a place at that time where he, you know, he's just, he's tough on himself and uh, he was tough on himself and, and, and tough on, on his, his supporting cast. And um, I think that, I think that he's, you know, I think that he's in a different place now than, than he was then. Um, and, uh, and, and, and ultimately like I have found working with him to be like incredibly fulfilling and, and I, I really trust him. Like, I feel like he's led me to write some good scores. Um, and, uh, so I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it was not like a, an easy experience. <laughs> It's interesting that um, those films you did with Ben, I'm going to guess that George Draculius yeah. was deeply involved as his music supervisor, a yes. tremendous music supervisor and a real interesting human being. And those films, particularly, you know, there's some great old school and Tropic Thunder, some big musical moments that are non-score. And yep. so... Uh, I guess you and Draculius would have conversations about this is going to be a needle drop. This is going to be a song moment. This yeah. is Tom Cruise dancing to ay, 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 ay. <laughs> or, or even on old school when uh, go to Dort in your neck and then he falls in the pool. They little little nod to the graduate there. Was right, that, right, right. Did you score that scene ever or when did no. the graduate? That was always a song. That was always a song. Um, but it wasn't always that song. Well, hmm. I feel like the first time I saw that scene, it was, um, uh, I don't know if I've got the right name of the song. I can tell that we are going to be friends from by the white stripes, which didn't work, but it was, but it was funny. And, and what, what was it ultimately? It was, uh, the sound of silence. It was the sounds of silence yeah, by yeah, yeah. Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Which of course is 
incredibly appropriate. Yeah. You know, given the pool. Um, I don't know why it wasn't always that. <laughs> we, we kind of actually glossed over the whole concept of, of old school as you were going through your story here. But this is a film that, I mean, in my opinion, it changed comedy moving forward. I mean, it started like a new generation of comedy. Yeah. And well, I, yeah. I don't know if the studio had the, any idea of how big this film was going to get and it would sort of launch the whole Will Ferrell, Vince Vaughn and the Wilson brothers kind of that that group really exploded after this film. Did you when you were approached for this film, was it just looked at as just a, a another comedy or did, did did they have big expectations for that movie? You know. Honestly, I had no idea. <laughs> like, you know, because I, I was just not of Hollywood in any way at the time. Like, I, I was, I, w- I mean, I was living out there for the year, but I was a New Yorker. I didn't know what the studios were thinking. Like, I didn't read the trades. I didn't know shit about, can I say that? Is, does that happen on this podcast or no? It's been said. Okay. Um, and worse. Okay, great. Uh, about about the business at all, and, and I liked that. You know, I mean, like I, I I I proudly didn't know anything about the business at the time, and and um, so I didn't have any sense of that. I mean, I got hired for old school because Todd liked the score for uh, this movie that I'd done called Heist, this David Mamet movie starring Gene Hackman, which of course had nothing to do musically with old school whatsoever. Um, Isn't that which, remarkable? You know, it, it's really a funny thing. It's like, um, like I feel that in a business where, you know, where you are so often hired because you've done another thing that's like the thing that they're, that they're trying to do. It's just really funny that the thing that got me into this string of working on comedies was a dark, you know, heist movie interestingly enough here we have todd phillips going full circle from old school to hilda godna daughter doing something you know very similar and saying hey could you score joker one thing i have to say about todd is it's it was always clear to me that he could do anything that he wanted to as a director i thought i thought that he you know he had so much confidence as a director um, you know, from old school on, and you look at you look at or the Hangover in particular. I feel like people don't really understand how well made a movie that is. Like it is hard to make that movie well. And, and believe me, in the wake of the Hangover, I have seen so many movies that are trying to be a version of that movie, and most of hmm. them are terrible. Hmm. And um, and it ain't easy. And he's just, he's just always had a real vision and a confidence as a director that makes it not at all surprising to me that he was able to direct Joker as well as he did. It's so nice. He hit it. Yeah. Hey, Kenny, should we take a minute, take a breather and yeah, we'll take a quick break. Come back with Teddy Shapiro. A lot more to come with Teddy Shapiro. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast, and The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. 
Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Tom, Junkie XL. You're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Teddy Shapiro. I think I slept to this song like for an entire summer on the DVD menu. I would fall asleep watching Old School and then it would loop all night long. On that track. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I wanted to ask you, we, we talked a little bit about Old School, but I wanted to ask you just overall when, when scoring comedy because... You know, when you watch a action film, the movie kind of tells you where music's supposed to go. People are fighting. There's drama going on. But with comedy, it seems like music could go anywhere or it could be nowhere. And the spotting of comedy seems like really the big challenge. And I I would love to know when you sit down and look at the first cuts of a film, what are you looking for in a comedy? What's... What speaks to you as like music goes here? I mean, that's it's a great question. Um, it is. Well, so so first of all, if you think about a movie like Tropic Thunder, that's that's a different you know that's a different kind of a thing because it because because functionally the score is really much more like an action movie than anything else. So that's a little clearer in terms of how to spot it. You know, in some cases the most important thing you can do as a composer is to, 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 to prevent music from going where it shouldn't go. I, I, I did this movie called I Love You, Man, which, mm-hmm. which I think is a really, a really good film. Oh, it's a great movie. And there's like less than five minutes of score in the whole movie. Hmm. Like, I feel like I did a good job in the sense that there shouldn't have been music. There should not have been any more music than there was. And, and, you know, we, we had a couple of really interesting test cases where there were scenes that played dry and we tried putting music there. They just didn't work as well. The music told you, no matter how tasteful it was, if you put in a shaker and, you know, and it just signaled, this is a moment here, as opposed to something that can just really breathe and you know, where the performance can carry the scene, it suddenly told you, like, you're about to watch a thing. <laughs> and it was less funny. You know, e- e- even if it pasted it up in some way, it made it less funny and, and it detracted from the performance. So so in some cases, like, that's really the challenge is is letting things play, letting things play 
dry and 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 maybe even resisting the temptation early on in the process to stick music places to make a long cut play faster. Is there more trial and error with comedy, would you say, just because of like your your kind of running parallel with punchlines and it's not kind of written on the wall? There's definitely, yeah, there's definitely some of that. I think the most challenging movies sort of in, in regard, you know, along the lines of, of the question that you're asking, the most challenging ones are the ones that are just naturalistic, naturalistic comedies, you know, as opposed to Tropic Thunder or Spy or Blades of Glory, which are genre films that are, you know, employing serious scores as counterpoint to, to comedy on screen. And, and with those, I think that, um, you know, for the most part, I just, I guess I try to just think about, um, how music can make as, as strong a statement as possible and, and bring some kind of, attitude to the movie um that can just help define tone and storytelling but i i don't have a method I, I i feel like every time through i'm sort of feeling my way through it i can feel that it's hard just by the way you're trying to answer it like there really is not a clear cut answer on how to do it it's definitely not have you ever been asked by a director to make something funnier that wasn't working definitely yeah, I mean, I think that everybody knows it sounds dumb to say, "Can you make this funnier?" But I've, <laughs> but I've definitely gotten that note in 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 differently phrased ways. Can you write it funnier? Can you write the script funnier? How about you know? Right, exactly. You know, yeah. The the, the savvy way of saying it is like we need to give the audience permission to laugh here. That's that's the that's that's how the the savvy executive asks for you to make it funnier. Um, but it is actually true that that sometimes, you know, what makes comedy so hard is sometimes you do need to give the audience permission to laugh at something without, um, you know, without telegraphing the joke. And that is just the most razor's edge thing line to walk as a as a composer. And you just um, you know, the reason the comedy is so hard to score is that, you know, the target where you are allowing the audience to laugh uh, without being jokey or with, without um, telling them to laugh is really hmm. small. And um, it's just a thing that, you know, you can't, I don't think you can ever master it. I, you just sort of struggle with it. Over well, you have there. to be naturally funny, which you are. You have to have an actual sense of humor. Do you have to be funny to, I mean, these, these, some of the funniest movies of the last 15, 20 years have been scored by you. And I'm wondering if there's a certain point where like, you've got to be a funny guy in the room <laughs> with these, this group. I, don't I be mean, modest. You I know. don't know that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I'm a funny person. Um, I mean, my, my children would definitely tell you that I'm not, but, but, um, uh, but I think that I know what's funny. Like I, I, like I, I think that, you know, I enjoy my own sense of humor and, and I'm around a lot of funny people. Like a lot of my closest friends are extremely funny. So and they so, say the uh, same about you. I mean, even that cue, Kenny, that you started this segment with the, the main title. 
it's a rocking cue, but it's funny too. There's something attitudinal and adolescent. Yeah. It, I don't know if that is say, says Juilliard in capital letters, no. but it, there's something. You know, it's like there's total attitude, and and that's a you have to be funny to write that for a film. You could probably write that seriously for your debut teenage record. Yeah. But you kind of nailed it, which is that's the sound of this movie. Well, you know, I mean, not to deflect, but the thing that I always find myself saying and my this is this is something that that my music editor and I always say to each other is is the picture will tell you what to do. And yes. you know, and the, the thing about old school is like it just had that punk energy to it. You know, it's just there in the filmmaking and um, it's definitely Todd's energy. And so, so that kind of like New York, like punky attitude, I just, it felt like it was baked into the film and, and that, you know, that led me to that approach to the score. Do you think like comedy is, underrated i mean there's no award show that's notable for comedies but it seems like it's the hardest thing to make and land and there's so many swings and misses year after year with comedies and to have a film like old school or like you mentioned the hangover and just like the masterpiece of what that is why doesn't comedy get more credit in filmmaking yeah i don't know i mean i don't have a good answer for that i mean i guess it's just always been that way. I don't know why, but obviously, you know, when I think about the power that comedies have had in my life, starting with, starting with Looney Tunes, some of the comedy in in Looney Tunes is still to this day, so funny to me. Um, And, you know, Blazing Saddles, which I have, probably seen 20 times and you know there's just so many comedies that have been formative um to me not like formative like oh i thought about the film music but just formative to to who i am as a person and my comedic sensibility um so i you know hugely important i'm wondering about something you said earlier that maybe we can just hear how do you escape or have you had any luck escaping a box that composers often get put in? Do you ever feel that you are, oh, get Teddy, he's comedy, but oh, hey, man, this is like a serious emotional movie. We got to get somebody else. You don't want to get a comedy guy. Has that happened to you? Have you broken through that? Well, has it happened to me? So many times, you know, I mean, oh, yes. Really? I, oh yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like I have experienced that a lot and, um, I am never, uh, am unaware of how incredibly lucky I am. Uh, you know, like I, I'm so fortunate to have the the career that I've had and, 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 and to have a genre where, I am a go-to composer and have been for, you know, for a, a lot of years. And, you know, that's amazing. Um, but it's also frustrating as an artist when you feel like there are projects that you, you know, that you could do really well that you're not 
um, being considered for because you're a, you know, quote, comedy guy. That's really that it's definitely changed over over time. And, you know, yeah, in the I'd last say bombshell is not a straight bombshell up comedy is, is not. A, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the year before that, I did Destroyer with Nicole Kidman, which which is about as far from a comedy as it gets. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, like I am I lead a very fulfilling creative life and and i i don't feel um i don't feel that hemmed in anymore um but but it's been an issue it's definitely been a thing that i um have contended with over over time and um i i've hosted film scoring students a number of times you know like at my studio or whatever and like the hundredth time you hear somebody be like are you concerned that you've been pigeonholed? Um, you know, like you do start to feel at some, to some degree, like, Oh, like I'm a case study for what you should be afraid of, um, in, in, in these kids' minds. And, um, and that kind of sucks. What do you do in that situation? Do you tell your agent, like start reaching out for other genres and say, I can do this. Or how do you get out of that pigeonhole? You know, honestly, like that's what we've been, you know, as far as Sam and I go, like that's the conversation that we've been having, like since we started working together. But the the, the reality is, is that it's just it's just a process. You know, it, I, I, like I think of it as um, like they tell you that like when you're if you're caught in an undertow in the water that like you don't fight against it, you just sort of like go with the flow and slowly get over to to the the side of it. And I, I think of this the same way, you know, like I'm, I'm not trying to swim against the current. If there's a comedy that I want to do, I'm, I'm going to do it and happily so. Um, and I still, you know, I work with a number of comedy directors who do wonderful work that I, who I love working with. Um, but, you know, to the degree to which I'm able to slowly edge myself over to, to the, uh, you know, to, to the edge of the undertow, like I'm doing that and, and, Obviously, um, you know, movies like Bombshell help. We sort of glossed over that, too. But Bombshell made a big splash. A different Teddy Shapiro sound, as you said. Yeah. Uh, it was much, much more serious. And at times uh, you, you, you did some really cool experimentations with the, the female voices yeah. um, included in the score. We had that one cue here. This is the, uh, the scene from the elevator. You utilized female voices in a scene where no one's speaking, and I thought that was a really cool experiment. Did was that something that you just kind of came up with out of the blue? Was there a discussion about utilizing choir to do the that? The very first thought that I had about the score to the movie was, you know, what can I do with female voices? That was just that was just first synapse. Um, I think my first idea was just that sort of vocal pulse. Huh, huh. And then I got on the phone with Jay Roach, the director, um, and he said, "You know, I've been thinking about doing something with women's voices." Oh wow! Um, and and so, you know, the the reference that I had been thinking about was some of the music by um, uh, this group called Roomful of Teeth, which is a New York-based chamber choir that 
has really kind of established a new kind of sound for for modern vocal writing. Mm. And um, and Jay was was thinking about uh, Petra Hayden, who has done these amazing um, acapella albums. Like she did, she redid a Who album using just her voice. And we it, it went from there. Um, so the very first piece of music that I, I started writing for the film right before or right during the time when they started shooting, which is something that I like to do. I like to start at an early phase hmm. um, where I'm writing just based on the script and where I can allow the music to be guided by theme and concept not letting temp influence you and stuff like that not letting te- and 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 ideally building up a library so that they can start so that the that the temp of the movie can be the score to the movie nice um Good. and the very first thing that i did was that piece of music that um is in the elevator scene oh it's so critical it, you know so hats off to the picture editor um cuz he had when I first went in, I don't even think there was a full cut. The first time I went in to just watch scenes, he had cut that piece of music into the elevator scene and it just worked great. Um, ultimately, I think, I think the beginning of the cue came from a different suite that I wrote. Um, and, and, and my music editor, he, he kind of made a combination of those two, two cues to, to make one thing. But, Ultimately, that whole thing came about um, through collaboration with uh, with my very very critical collaborators. Teddy, before we uh, before we go, you had a big movie come out, Trolls World Tour. Yeah, the movie did really well, releasing straight to streaming. Yeah. Um, first off, did they even have a, a red carpet? I don't think. No, I got canceled. And yeah. did you work with do you, like when? these movies with a, a lot of pop star influence are you working with timberlake and and ludwig Göransson? i know you've worked with ludwig before but are you guys in contact during that or do you play off each other yeah so 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 ludwig and i um we share studio space so so we're 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 good friends uh and we work in the same building and wow. so and actually when like the way that this whole thing worked was that Mike Mike Noblock, who used to work with Robert Fox. Noblock, Noblock. I recognize <laughs> yeah, the name. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to reintroduce you guys at some point. Good. Um, the man of Universal. Yeah, so he came to Ludwig and I and pitched this idea where Ludwig would work on the songs and I would work on the score and it would all be housed in one, you know, under one roof. Nice. And, um, and, and, and also our, our studio is like about five ten minutes away from DreamWorks animation so so it, it it offered up a really good headquarters for for music for the film when we got hired I sort of thought well that's really nice that they're pitching this all under one roof thing but I don't know how significant it's really gonna be and it turned out that it was really significant because it just it made the flow between songs and score really work it made it very harmonious there's a number of places where um you know i used stems from songs and as part of cues um you know there's a number of places where 
the line between what is song and what is score is a little bit blurry. So, you know, if Ludwig created an element and then I need to take that element and, and, and expand on it in the score, we could do that. I was doing, you know, I did some arrangements for songs that he had been, you know, that he had helped produce um, or write. And so, so it was all just a very nice blend and uh, you know, it, the whole, the whole idea of creating a, a, a collective atmosphere for working on the musical palette for the film just worked out really well. I love that. And it's, it's kind of a good reminder and, and a good summary of as tech and online and cyber related as we all are, the idea that you could even conceivably yell down the hallway. Yeah. Ludwig, what key is that song in? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Throw me a thumb drive with your stem. Yeah. Right. That, exactly. that you could be physically or you're even going to meet at the coffee machine. And, you know, what are you working on? Oh, that's funny. Let me come in and listen for a yeah, minute. Absolutely. Um, it's the oldest, uh, you know, business theory of all, which is that if that most good ideas happen by accident in the kitchen, when you're just standing next to somebody while they're waiting for the microwave to cook something, you say, Hey man, what do you what do you think about this, this, and this? And that's where ideas take place. I love the fact that you're under the same roof, and um, I hope No Block will give me credit for something I had nothing to do with, just in theory. <laughs> I think because, that you should claim credit for it. I think I should claim credit as well. But um, Teddy, it's wonderful to hear that, and I'll be curious to hear the score. To, you said a searchlight film that's coming yeah. up. That'll yeah, the cool. eyes of Tammy Faye. The Eyes of Tammy Faye, what a wonderful, bizarre, and interesting topic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it's Jessica Chastain and, and Andrew Garfield, both of whom are really wonderful in the, in the film. And uh, I'm having a good time. Is the film finished and you are in the scoring process? Yes, yes. The, the Eyes of Tammy film. Faye. So you have something to work on during this whole uh, yeah, stay at yeah. home, which is great. It, it is great. I mean, I, you know, I was in the middle of a project which is on, you know, which has now gone on hiatus, um, you know, until mm. there's some sense of when it can be finished. So I'm, I'm so happy to have something to, like, not only happy to have a thing to work on, but a good thing to work on. So Well, we're certainly home. glad you weren't too busy. So you could uh, join us on the show today. We really appreciate you coming on. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. This was just really, really fun to do. It was just a, a purely pleasant experience to talk to you guys. So thanks so much for having me. That's so nice. A reminder to our listeners, you can follow us. There's a number of ways. Facebook, at Score, a film music documentary. Instagram, at Score Movie. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Stick around after the show today. We're going to play you a clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear some different sample sounds to elevate your music. And don't forget to send your questions in. Score the mailbox at epiclef.com. We're waiting by the mailbox. We can't wait to hear your questions. Robert. Hey, Kenny, thanks. And Teddy, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Learned so much today. See you next week. Hey, Score listeners. We want to just show our appreciation for our cool sponsor, Spitfire Audio, it's the favorite of so many composers. People like Hans Zimmer worked with them. Bernard Herrmann, who did all those great Hitchcock movies, his estate helps them build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like.
And again, as an exclusive to our listeners, you, all of you, Spitfire is offering 20% off your first order, and that's good on over 50 of their libraries. Again, it's exclusive to score the podcast listeners. Yep, just go to SpitfireAudio.com and enter promo code SCORE2020 so they know we sent you. We're going to play a music clip, right, Kenny? That's right. Here is a clip from the London Contemporary Orchestra Textures Package. Check it out. Again, just use that promo code SCORE2020 to get 20% off your first order with Spitfire Audio products. It's good on over 50 libraries. And uh, we will see you next week on an all-new episode of Score the Podcast.